overcoat thief arrested, an express messenger murdered and his car robbed, a grand defense, hunting for aldermen. The crime news for the 20th of March, 1886 from the Milan Exchange and the Memphis Appeal on this edition of A Year of Crime was reported in the newspapers of West Tennessee. Please be aware that some articles published in 1886 used language that we find offensive today. It was my decision to report the articles as written during that time in the belief that we must tell the truth about our history. Our first articles are from the Milan Exchange. Mr. Joseph T. Williams is this week announced as a candidate for constable of this district. He has lived here all his life, has been a successful farmer, is a good businessman, and is competent to make a good officer. He has many friends in the district who will work hard for his election. H. M. Johnson Esquire, the present efficient clerk of the Humboldt Law Court, is announced this week as a candidate for re-election. He has made a most excellent officer for many years, as is proven by his re-election every time he has heretofore asked for it, and he will be a hard man to defeat. He has the confidence of the people and is a polite, painstaking official. Overcoat Thief Arrested Anthony Seals, colored an ex-convict from Mississippi, stole Conductor Hunt's overcoat from his caboose on the IC Road a few days since and was arrested here by Marshal Lusk last Wednesday. Seals was tried before Esquire Jordan, who sent him to jail to await trial at the Humboldt Law Court. This next section of the paper is titled Topics of the Day, News from Everywhere, and the first little article shows us that anti-Chinese, anti-Asian discrimination is as old as this country. When will we ever learn? The anti-Chinese convention at Sacramento, California adopted a proposition to boycott all who employ or patronize Chinese. A conspiracy to overthrow the governor of Minakato was recently discovered in Japan in time to remove the danger. Judge Gildersleeve of the New York Court of General Sessions has received a letter from a member of the late Board of Aldermen offering to reveal the inside history of the Broadway Railroad deal with the Aldermen. The letter was referred to the foreman of the grand jury. Nat C. Goodwin and several other stage artists were fined $10 in cost each at Cincinnati on the 12th for taking part in Sunday performances. Madam Adelina Patti partially failed in the first act of La Travinta at Valencia, Spain on the night of the 12th and was roundly hissed. She left the theater in high dungeon and had to be escorted to her hotel by the police. The Monte Carlo station master who caused the recent railway collision was arrested on the 12th and committed suicide. The remains of Ford and Murphy, who were executed at New Orleans on the 12th, were buried in Greenwood Cemetery. No religious services were held. About 150 per persons were present. A terrible tragedy was enacted at Hot Springs, Arkansas. On the 13th, George Williams, clerk at the hotel, shot and killed Mrs. Norris, a guest of the house, and attempted to kill himself. The penitentiary convicts of Mississippi have been leased to the Gulf and Ship Island Railroad Company for $20,000 per year. A boy named John Davis, 14 years old, has been sentenced to the Georgia Penitentiary for life. The next section of the paper is titled Southern Gleanings. At Queen City, Texas a few days ago, Mike Clements killed his brother-in-law, Sam Summerfield. A gang of robbers, which congregated at the Dayton, Tennessee, on the line of the Cincinnati Southern Railway, recently attempted to burglarize the large jewelry store of Obel & Company and the Cincinnati Southern Depot at Chattanooga. 
Their plot had been revealed to the sheriff, and a dozen officers were in each building. When the thieves broke in and commenced to drill holes in the safe, officers demanded their surrender. The burglars opened fire on the sheriff's posse and by means of the darkness escaped without securing any booty. The sheriff of Gillespie County, Texas, and his posse have been indicted for killing a convict. Robert S. Fowler of the Morganfield, Kentucky, who murdered his niece, is to be executed April 23rd. Twenty-five masked men took Handy Woodward, colored from jail at Russellville, Kentucky, a few nights ago and lynched him. Charlie Jones, eight years old, died at San Antonio, Texas a few days ago from morphine used in a prescription by mistake instead of quinine. James Bird shot and fatally wounded Tom Martin at a dance in Anderson County, Kentucky a few nights ago. An old grudge was the cause. Both are farmers. The free miners at Greenwood, Kentucky spent the night in firing shots at the convent camp, preventing the militia guard from getting any sleep. By decision of the Supreme Court of Georgia, George T. Jackson will spend six years in the penitentiary for embezzling $117,000 of the funds of the Enterprise Cotton Company of Augusta. A dispatch from Ashland, Kentucky, asserts that it can be conclusively proven that Neil, Kraft, and Ellis were innocent of the murder of three children for which they were executed and that the real perpetrators are known and about to be arrested. Constable Lee Jenkins of Waco, Texas, recently arrested Frank A. Henry on suspicion of being one of the three men who robbed the safe of William Cameron and Company at Brownwood. Both young Henry says he can easily prove an alibi and asserts that he was in Waco on the occasion of the robbery at Brownwood. A.P. McCulley, a Galveston, Texas policeman, is held in custody on the charge of kicking Clarence Clark of McComb, Illinois, in the abdomen until he died. Clark was drunk and provoked a quarrel with the officer who was off duty. The trial at Gallatin, Tennessee of William Moss and his son, charged with the murder of Arch Harper of Bethpage, resulted in the acquittal of the father and the conviction of the son. The latter was sentenced to imprisonment in jail for four hours. The killing was caused by the circulation by Harper of a report reflecting on the character of Miss Moss. Miss Effie Hankins of Chicago, the wife of a noted gambler, was robbed at St. Charles Hotel in New Orleans a few nights ago by masked burglars of jewelry valued at $12,000. J.J. Carroll, who was in the room with her at the time, was relieved of $500 and a gold watch and chain. There are some who hint at a put-up job. At College Hill, Madison County, Kentucky, a Negro boy named Jeff Greider bought a half dollar's worth of Rough on Rats, a few days ago and put it in some sassafras tea, which was drunk by Mrs. Detheroy and her nine-year-old daughter and the cook named Jenny Henderson. None can possibly recover. The boy is but 14 years of age. Excitement was great, and it seemed probable that Judge Lynch would deal out speedy justice to the young wretch. These are decidedly striking times. A bloody deed. An express messenger murdered and his car robbed. A terrible crime committed on the Rock Island Road between Joliet and Morris, Illinois. The miscredents secure about $25,000. Chicago, March 13th. The express car of the Chicago and Rock Island train, which leaves the city 11 p.m., was boarded by robbers at Joliet at 1 o'clock this morning. Kellogg Nichols, express messenger of the United States Express Company, was killed, and money and jewelry, valued at about $35,000, were stolen. Nichols attended to his duties at Joliet, but when the train arrived at Morris, 20 miles beyond Joliet, he did not open the door of the car. 
The local agent at Morris forced open the door and found Nichols lying dead on the floor of the car with his cut throat cut from ear to ear and his head horribly cut and crushed. The baggage man was found bound and gagged in the next car. The safe was broken open and its contents gone. As the train does not stop between Joliet and Morris, it is approximately certain that the robbers boarded the cars at the former place. Chicago, March 14th. The news of the robbery of the express car and the murder of the messenger produced the greatest excitement in the Rock Island office in this city yesterday. Division Superintendent E.H. Chamberlain was in receipt of a dozen dispatches detailing the particulars of the affair. The officers of the road held a consultation and agreed to send special detectives on the track of the ruffians at once. The train, number five, left the depot Friday night at 11 o'clock. It consisted of the locomotive, two baggage cars, two sleepers, and three coaches in charge of conductor Wagner. Kellogg Nichols of this city was the express manager. It is thought that the men who committed the robbery and murder are convicts lately released from Joliet Penitentiary. The brakeman of train number 16 says he saw six men walking along the edge of the woods near O'Stable, Sable, which is close to Morris. Officers from Joliet are out after the men. They left nothing in the car by which they might be identified except a stove poker, which was used by one of them as a weapon. Superintendent Chamberlain left for Morris yesterday to investigate the affair and take charge of the body. Nichols was 45 years of age and unmarried. He lived on the north side. A messenger statement. The first authentic information of the murder reached the express office on Washington Street when the incoming messenger, W.M. Turner, reached here. His train met the one in which Nichols was killed at Morris, and Mr. Turner reached the place soon after the murder was discovered. The wildest excitement prevailed about the depot at the time. Nichols was found with his throat cut from ear to ear, the wound being a jagged, uneven gash as if it had been inflicted with a hatchet. Turner had to leave for Chicago before the investigation was well underway. It was found, however, that everything was all right when the train drew up at Joliet. It started promptly, according to schedule time, and was due to arrive at Morse at 1.30 a.m. No stops were made between these places, and for that reason, it is thought the murderers boarded the train at Joliet. Arriving at Morris, Nichols, as was his wont, did not appear at the door of the express car to deliver his packages. The agent waited on the platform for several minutes, and tiring of the delay, opened the door himself. The sight that met his eyes was a horrible one. Nichols' body, covered with blood, was lying in one corner of the car. The safe was open and the valuables found missing. The United States Express officials here say that Nichols had in his custody from $20,000 to $25,000 in some 40 packages of jewelry consigned to jewelry firms in the country. The value of this jewelry is unknown, but the Express people say it cannot be less than $5,000 and may be worth double that amount. The Express Company acted promptly as soon as they heard of the murder. They took immediate steps to track the murderers, and a large force of detectives was set to work on the case. A special from Morris says, Conductor Wagner, who had charge of the train on which the Express agent Kellogg Nichols was murdered, says, As the train came to a standstill at Morris at 1.50 this morning, I got out on the platform. About the same time, Wyatt jumped off the baggage car as white as a sheet and gasped out, my God, look in there. The money is all gone and the papers are all over the car. I looked in with my lantern and the safe was standing open. The way bills were all scattered around and the drafts and other papers, some of them torn, were all around on the floor. I took my key and went to the other car and called, Nick, Nick, but there was no answer. As I swung my lantern in the car, a horrible sight was seen. There was blood scattered around everywhere and on the trunks. The local 
waybills were all covered with blood and the legs of the chairs were bloody. In the forward part of the car, I found the body of Nick. The face was covered with blood and the great pool was underneath, underneath him. The body was still warm. The car showed that there had been a great fight from nearly one end to the other. On a hook hung a big poker, which was also covered with blood. Nick lay with both hands clenched, and between the fingers of one hand he held a lock of black hair, while on the other hand was a lock of red hair. The conductor thinks the robbers got on at the coal chute near Joliet and had jumped off just as the train slowed up at Morris. It is understood that the Rock Island Road will offer a reward of $10,000 for the capture of the men who committed the robbery and $5,000 for the arrest of any one of them. A Grand Defense, Wives, Heroines, and Widows in a Day It was a June day in Arizona. At Robert's Ranch on the Gila, there was a feeling of perfect peace and security as the sun climbed high into the heavens. Roberts was, Roberts was planting in a field half a mile from the stout log cabin while his wife was busy with household chores. There were horses and cattle in an enclosure a quarter of a mile from the house, and a pony, which was permitted to ramble at will, cropped the grass around the cabin. Such was the situation when the wife heard two or three rifle shots and the war whoops of Indians. She sprang to the door to see that her husband was making for the house at his best speed, while three Indians followed him and, and up and fired as they ran. Geronimo's Apache devils had broken loose and taken the warpath. The ranchman's wife understood at a glance what was occurring. Her heart gave one great throb. A terrible weakness overcame her for an instant, and then she seized the Winchester rifle from its hooks, grabbed the long-barreled navy from its holster, and ran with all speed to meet her husband. He fell before they met, shot in the back. His left arm had been previously broken by a bullet. Molly, the red devils are loose, he said as she came up and kneeled beside him. If there are only three, we can beat them off, she replied as she made ready to open fire. The Indians had halted within rifle shot to counsel. Her first shot bored one of them through and through, and the other two retreated to broken ground half a mile away. I'll carry you to the house and then watch for them, she said as they disappeared. Blood was pouring from his wounds and oozing from his mouth, and it was plain that he had been mortally hit. It's no use, he groaned. I've got to die right here. In half an hour, there'll be fifty of them, and they are sure to capture you. I'll stay with you. Not another moment. Run to the house, get all the car cartridges, and then mount the pony, and then ride to Gilpin's. The upper trail's clear. Oh, George, I can't leave you. The revolver was under his hand. His fingers clenched over the butt, and he whispered, Molly, kiss me. She bent over him with a sob in her throat, and his hand worked the revolver around until the muzzle touched his side. There was a smothered report, and she sprang up to see his limbs stiffen in death. She did not scream out. She did not totter and faint. She imprinted a kiss on the dead face, and as she rose up, her teeth were set hard, and her eyes had the glare of a wounded wolf's. She ran to the house, taking rifle and revolver with her, and in five minutes was galloping toward McGilpin's, having neither saddle nor bridle, and holding fast to weapons and cartridges. As she left, the ranch bullets whistled about her head, and shouts of vengeance came to her ears. It was just such a day, a June day, at McGilpin's, five miles above. The sun beat down with a warmth which called the crickets from their nest in the grass and kept the wild bees humming their satisfaction. The ranchman was fashioning a new hell for his axe in the shade, and his wife had the noonday meal ready for the table. Suddenly the old man looked up, and next instant he was on his feet and shading his eyes with a hand. Jehoshaphat! Quick, mother! Fasten the back door! Down with the windows and pull the shutters, too! Robert's wife is coming up the trail with a dozen engines after her. He seized his Winchester and ran down the trail to cover the approach of the woman. Her pony seemed to understand that it was life or death and was straining every nerve. 
The Indians had not followed her from the ranch, but had come in on her from the Santa Cruz River Trail, and had kept her under fire for at least two miles. As soon as the ranchman appeared, the Indians, eleven in number, drew rein. Where's George? asked McGilpin as the pony halted beside him. Dead. And the bucks are in war paint. Go inside, woman. It's no time for grief. Owing to the river on one side and the wire fence on the other, the Indians could not scatter at once. They must approach the ranch under the ranchman's fire, if at all. He waited for them, but they hesitated and held a consultation. During this respite, the woman made the house secure, filled a barrel with water, and turned a number of horses loose and forced them to cross the river. While they were accomplishing these objects, a part of the Indians were cutting the fences, and the rest were in consultation. The ranchman stood like a rock, his eyes noting the slightest movement, his breath coming faster, and a feeling in his heart that this was his last day on earth. A pillar of black smoke told him that Robert's ranch was being destroyed to the west. Another to the east betrayed the fate of another neighbor. When the Indians had cut the fences to give them fair approach to the house, a warrior started up the trail with the white handkerchief in his hand as a flag of truce. Approaching within revolver shot, he halted and called out, Indians no hurt, Indians want dinner. The quick eye of the ranchman detected two dismounted redskins dodging from cover to cover to gain the rear of the house. The idea was to parley until they were in position. Indians go way after dinner. No hurt anybody. No take horses, shouted the flag bearer. Within a moment so quick that the other had no time to prepare for it, the ranchman brought his rifle to an aim. There was a loud report, and the buck fell from his horse. As he tumbled from his saddle, the pony made a jump or two, and there was another report, and the beast rolled over. Next instant, there was a shot from the cabin, and one of the pair of skulkers uttered his death yell. When the smoke rose, the rangeman was no longer to be seen. He had retreated to the house. Filled with chagrin and a desire for vengeance, the Indians now dismounted and crept near, and in a few minutes the cabin was being assailed from every point of the compass. Within, there were two pale-faced women and a grim, determined man. The structure was roughly built of planks and logs undivided by partitions, there were only four windows, and they were, these were protected by stout shutters, which were pierced with loopholes. The weapons were two Winchesters and two revolvers. The ranchman's first move after getting inside was to divide his force as to cover the windows. He then pulled out the chinking at the corners of the cabin to make other loopholes, and each one of the trio took a post of observation and defense. Scarcely a word, word had been exchanged since the arrival of Mrs. Roberts. Each one reasoned out for himself or herself, a gang of Apaches have broken loose from the reservation and are on the warpath. They will burn and slay until a force can be raised to overpower them. It may be a week before that force is in the field. Surrender means to be burned at the stake. A desperate resistance may drive them off. There was Roberts, the husband of a year, lying dead and scalped and horribly mutilated on his freshly planted field. His stock had been shot down or driven off, and the red flames had licked up his cabin. But there were no tears in the blue eyes of his wife as she peered from one of the loopholes. Tears would have dimmed her vision, and a watchful eyes were needed there. For an hour or more, the Indians maintained an unceasing fire, but without inflicting the least damage. They were then joined by a party of seven coming from the east, and it soon became apparent, evident that some decisive step was to be taken. I know what they will do, said the ranchman, as the reports of rifles died away. They will divide into three or four parties and assail the house from as many sides. If they can't batter the doors down, they will try to set the house on fire. Each of you take a revolver, and I will use the rifles. Be cool, and we can drive them back. The three had been waiting at their stations ten minutes when the rush was made. The sixteen Indians divided into bands of four, and one in each every band carried a lighted torch. The ranchman broke one band by killing the buck with a torch and wounding one of the others. 
From the loopholes, the women wounded two more, but presently the two doors were vigorously attacked while the torchmen ran from point to point with their blazing brands. In bodies of four or five, the redskins threw themselves against the doors, but it was a vain effort. Each had two bars across the inside. The attack did not last three minutes. As the Indians retreated, the ranchmen flung open a door and rushed out and seized the only torch with threatened damage, and he was under cover again before a shot was fired at him. In that attack, the Apaches lost two killed and three badly wounded. After a rest of half an hour, a number of redskins crept near and began to fire blazing arrows at the roof. A few struck, but no damage resulted. Then the rifle firing recommenced, and it was while peering through a loophole that McKilpin received a ball in the eye and fell back dead before he reached the floor. A woman's shriek, a woman's wail, that was all. For ten seconds, the widows were women again. Then came a shout which warned them they must be heroines while a red devil lingered. There was a second rush at the house. The revolvers cracked as before. The whole house shook as the doors received shock after shock. Yells, whoops, and screams, and reports of firearms loaded the air for three minutes, and then deep silence fell upon the ranch. The Apaches had been repulsed again. Each woman sprang the empty cartridges from her revolver and replaced them and continued her watch. By and by they looked out to see the band at full gallop two or three miles away. Geronimo was there in person. His bucks were the Red Devils of the West. Two women had beaten him off. Five of his men had been killed and five others so badly wounded that they were forced to return to the reservation and lie hidden while he continued the raid, which was brought to a close only a few days ago. At sundown, an officer and escort with dispatches drew rein at the ranch. There was no one to answer the hail. The men dismounted and looked in. In the center of the room lay the ranchman, cold in death. Beside him, each with her face hidden in her hands, were each rocking her body to and fro, were two widows, poor, weak women, through whose powder-stained fingers the tears found their way. Wives at morn, heroines at noon, widows at sunset. From the New York Sun. This next section is not crime news, but is interesting. It's titled Over the State, and it's very short and sweet. Jackson will soon have electric lights. Jordan Burton shot and fatally wounded his stepfather, Sam Rogers, at Glen Mary Sunday. The post office at Prospect Giles County was robbed last Saturday night. Ben Brown, the murderer of Frank Arnold at Nashville, was sentenced last Sunday, Saturday to hang on April the 30th. George Whaley, a saloon keeper in Nashville, was cowhide Tuesday by Mrs. Kilber, whom he had been talking about in a slanderous way. Frank Phillips, Robert Graham, and William Roberts were arrested in Memphis Saturday morning for attempting to blow open the safe of the Brinkley Lumber Company of that city on Friday night. Alamo Sentinel, some thieves broke into Uncle Joe Cricklow's store at Johnson Grove last Friday night and secured about $12 a Monday, about the same amount of goods. They also tried to open his safe, but failed. The flowering mill of W.R. Care three miles west of Bolivar, was robbed and burned Sunday night, lost $5,000, no insurance. Part of the stolen contents were found in the house of a Negro who had fled but is being pursued by officers. Nashville Union. Phil Maples was tried at Fayetteville for murder and sentenced for life. The Fayetteville Observer says, Phillips is a stout, robust man and looks as if he will live out the full time of his sentence. This butts the Irish bull clean off the bridge. A terrible tragedy occurred at Carrollton, Mississippi last Wednesday by which 13 Negroes were killed. It grew out of an attempted assassination of a prominent citizen named James Liddell, who was shot by the Negroes some weeks ago. 
the Negroes were in the courtroom at the time, and their killing seemed to have been a cold-blooded act by a mob. John Gillespie covered, colored, shot, and killed Mrs. Tom Gray, a respectable white lady near Loudon, Tennessee, Wednesday, while her husband was absent. It is thought he attempted to outrage her person, but failed when he shot her. He was arrested and is a probable is a dead Negro before now, as there was talk of lynching him. Miss Emma Norman shot and killed Henry Arnold in Memphis Saturday night. She says that Arnold seduced her and then wouldn't marry her. She would not allow her father and brother to avenge her wrong, but claimed the privilege of killing the seducer herself. She is in jail, but we imagine it will be a hard matter to get a jury to convict her if her statement is true. The Fighting Editor An Albuquerque journalist mutilated the able-bodied Tufts. The champion fighting editor of the country lives at Albuquerque, New Mexico. As the story goes, 11 citizens of the variety known as Tufts came to the conclusion a short time ago that it was their duty, in the interest of law and order and the purity of the ballot box, to take the editor out and hang him. Now, our Albuquerque journalist lived alone in a log cabin consisting of a single room with the cellar underneath. His only companion, a pet grizzly bear, occupied the cellar. On the night when the editor had good reasons to expect a visit from the reformers, he retired to the cellar and left the upper room to the grizzly. At the hour of midnight, eleven stalwart men arrived with a rope. They battered down the door and rushed in eager for the fray. They had no light, but they rushed against their man, as they supposed. For an editor, he showed unusual pluck and strength. He went for the lynchers with such activity that the fight was over in five minutes. In the gray of early morning, three men turned up in Albuquerque, each with an eye missing. One man called to the doctor's office with one foot and three fingers chewed off. The remaining seven reformers were loafing around on the streets, more or less mutilated. When the alleged facts of the fracas got out, the editor became the most popular man in the territory. His paper is doing a booming business, and he can get any office he wants. He still keeps the grizzly in the cellar ready for an emergency. This is from the Atlanta Constitution. The remaining articles are from the Memphis Appeal. Regular listeners will remember this story from our last episode, Hunting for Alderman, implicated in the Broadway Railroad franchise, continuation of the investigation by the Senate Committee, Jane and Court in the courtroom, New York, March the 19th. Police Inspector Burns was seen at his office this morning preparing to go out when a reporter asked him if he was going to drag his net for more aldermen today. He smiled at the question and replied, This is a matter that I would rather not talk about. I am in hopes that the evidence is sufficient to warrant the arrest of some of the guilty ones. That is for the district attorney to decide. He is going ahead cautiously to get evidence that will stand in court. To me, it looks as if he would come pretty near getting it. Is it true that all the aldermen of 1884 are involved? Nearly all. There are two, the inspector spoke warmly and with earnest emphasis, of whom I can say here now that they are not tarred with that stick, Alderman Grant and O'Connor, a Democrat and the other Republican. Of them, it can be positively and absolutely stated at this stage of the inquiry that they were not bribed, as to the rest of the inspector paused. As to the rest, queried the reporter, well... As to them, you will know shortly who were bought and who were not, or perhaps, I will better say, of whom it can be proved that they were bought. Let it rest till then. Allusion was made to the civil wear scrape of Jane, who, in the role of the fence, dragged Inspector Bynes into an unpleasant notoriety. 
everything in its turn, said the inspector calmly. Before we get through this, I will come pretty near showing up some things in connection with this matter that are not now as plain to the public as they might be. That attack on me, I believe, was made by parties who were cognizant of what I was doing with Jane to throw discredit on me or turn off the wrath to come. It did not work, and it won't now. When I am through with the more important work on hand, there will be time to show up that little affair and its bearings on me. Speculation was rife at police headquarters as to the identity of the lawyers employed according to Jane, who, by his fe fellow aldermen, to cover up their tracks by o overhauling their private books and papers and fixing them up to bear the scrutinizing gaze of the Senate committee. Inspector Byrnes would not tell us who he was, but said significantly that this turn would come in its season. Said a long-headed politician who haunts the quarters at police headquarters, there is another aspect to this you haven't thought of. If it turns out to involve the repeal of the Broadway franchise by the legislature, an enormous array of influence, political and otherwise, of power and wealth, will be put behind Jane to protect him from harm, and that same power will be exerted to intimidate Inspector Burns, on whose testimony all this now rests. What will be the result as to Burns? I believe it will accomplish nothing. His record is clear, and attempts to intimidate him will, I think, be productive of little profit or credit to those who try it. Beyond him, well, we shall see. This is going to be a big fight. Alderman Jane, with his counsel, Richard S. Newcomb, walked down Broadway today at 11 o'clock and went into the post office building to attend the session of the Senate Broadway Investigating Committee. Mr. Jane looked very meek and seemed anxious to avoid notice. The investigation continued. The arrest of Alderman Jane seemed to greatly increase the interest formerly manifested in the investigation of the granting of the franchise the Broadway Service Road. Chairman Lowe of the committee was the first to arrive, followed by ex-alderman Fink. A murmur spread through the courtroom as Alderman Jane entered, accompanied by ex-alderman Cleary. His counsel, Mr. Newcomb, followed, and Alderman O'Neill, Delancey, and ex-sheriff Bowe secured seats within the inner railing. Alderman Jane, far from trying to avoid the gaze of the spectators, stood up by the judge's bench, in full view of all, chatting cheerfully with his friends. For the day, he promised to be a bigger man than the ex-Senator Conkling, when Mr. Conkling entered, he called for Alderman Pearson, but the latter failed to respond. Mr. Conkling, Alderman Pearson, is called as a witness. Still, no answer. When Alderman Pearson did not appear, Mr. Conkling held a long consultation with his colleague and again called James Pearson. No answer. Mr. Conkling, Mr. Newcomb, Mr. Pearson is one of the men for whom you are responsible. Will you note that we want him? Mr. Newcomb. I promise to produce him if you will give me notice. I will notify him. A.B. Kirkland, accountant of the committee, testified that in the Murphy Hill Bank he examined the signature of the bank and found the name of Thomas McGuire, in which all the checks were payable to Mr. Duffy. There were discounts amounting to $6,000 on lots in 102 D Street owned by Mary Duffy. Mr. William D. Tallman was called and responded, but before his examination, Harry J. Hume, a brother-in-law of Pearson, was sworn. Mr. Tallman was then examined and said that his wife was Alderman Pearson's sister. Pearson, Pearson had three brothers, Alexander, William, and James. Tallman's business in 1884 was gents furnishing goods at the southwest corner of 6th Avenue and 24th Street. The firm's name was Pearson and Tallman. Pearson, Pearson was then an alderman. The testimony was continued at considerable length, but nothing of a startling nature developed. 
The city court jury in the case of J.B. Shackelford, charged with administering strychnine and whiskey to his rival for the affection of a third man's wife, returned a verdict of guilty last night. Punishment is left for the court to fix. Humboldt, Tennessee. Growers of strawberries preparing to ship to New York and other northern cities. Correspondence to the, of the appeal. Humboldt, Tennessee. March 19th. Law court is in session here this week. Judge Aiden presiding by interchange with Judge Cathar Carthel, who is holding court at Union City. The docket is unusually large, both on the civil and criminal sides. The slander suit of A.J. Williams versus M.T. Cox is now being tried, all of the local bar and representatives of the Trenton Bar being engaged. Judge Aiden is making a good impression on our people by his readiness and ability in presiding. Carrying Private Weapons For a country to prosper as it has capacity to do and to command that respect among other nations every patriot wishes his own country to prosper, human life must be safe. To be safe, it must not only have the protection of the law, but also the moral sentiment of the community. Thou shalt do no murder is a command from the highest authority man can reverence, and obedience to it is a sort of moral thermometer which unerringly records the influence religious principle has upon a community. Where murder is prevalent, there is every little religion, or what there is of a very spurious kind, the empty show that says, I go, but never enters the vineyard where the fruit is human goodness. Either from a decrease in the quality or in the quantity of religion possessed in Memphis, there have been more murderers and attempts at murder of late than for some years past. Or does the cause lie in a relaxed administration of the law? Have its officers, whose special duty it is to repress crime, fallen back toward that remiss in guarding human life, which was at one time a reproach to Memphis? To repress the frequent bloodshed, the legislature provided the necessary laws, and an upright and resolute judge so administered them that an entire change took place, and the reproach was moved. removed. The prevalent cause of murder had been the custom of carrying concealed weapons owing to whose presence deeds were done in hot blood in which their perpetrators were afterward in many cases horrified, but no repentance could relieve them from the stigma of murder. The charge was made by requiring the police whenever they arrested a prisoner or whenever they discovered in either ways that weapons were concealed about the person to make that fact a distinct charge. The fact proved our outright judge gave for such a breach of a most Important law, a corresponding sentence, fine and jail produced their effect, and would-be murderers seized to carry the weapons of preparation for crime about them. If there is relaxation upon this point, if the carrying of concealed weapons is once again becoming a practice in the city, and if this is a consequence of, of remissness of duty in official quarters, public opinion should not be apathetic but be strongly expressed, lest the fearful curse we had with no little trouble subdued once more raise its blood-stained face among us. If our religious bodies do their prayers for the salvation of Memphis will add their wide influence toward repressing the carrying of concealed murderous weapons, the practice will cease as it did before. Sensation in Sicily, Rome, March 19th. A sensation has been produced in Sicily by a most daring attempt by brigades to capture the great-grandson of Admiral Nelson. The young gentleman is the Honorable Victor Albert Nelson Hood, son of the present and third Irish Baron Bridgeport, whose father was the husband of Lady Charlotte, daughter of Admiral Nelson. His father is a query to the Queen, 
and Duke of Bronte in Sicily. The family estate includes the estate containing the Castello de Mal Malice in Sicily, which was given by the King of Sicily to the Admiral for a testimonial of gratitude for the victory of Trafalgar. Victor was residing in the castle when the brigand, who is, is believed, had plotted to take him prisoner and hold him for a higher ransom, made an attack in force upon the place. The servants were brave and soon rallied around their young master in defense of his person and estate. A desperate and prolonged battle ensued, which resulted in the defeat and dispersal of the robbers, but only after many of them were disabled by wounds from further fighting. Four of the brigands were taken prisoners and turned over to the custody of the authorities. Outrages in Ireland Killarney, March 19th. A carrier named Neil was attacked and beaten until unconscious last night while conveying goods from Killarney to Malfeth for the Curtin family, the head of which was murdered by moonlighters last November. The carrier's injuries were serious and it is feared may prove fatal. Five walking saloons, evading the four-mile law in Lake County, have the good people of Tiptonville managed to smile at their leisure. Five Perambulating grog, shop, grog shops were corralled in Lake County Thursday and turned over to United States Marshal Freeman yesterday by his deputy, Robert Irvine. The four-mile law flourishes in all its pristine glory at Tiptonville, and the county named and the amount of smiling done there has been extraordinarily large. The marshal received complaints from the temperance people of Lake that there was more drunkenness, more hoodlinism, and more ruffianism than when saloons were permitted that there were no places where liquor was sold, and yet barrels of it were consumed every month. This peculiar statement led to an investigation. It was discovered that whiskey was shipped from Memphis in bottles, jugs, and kegs, and in a considerable quantity to Lake County, but the mystery was how it found its fiery way into the throats of the people. The investigation was pursued, however, and finally resulted in the discovery that there were saloons in Lake County, about seven in all, and that they were non-licensed and moved about from place to place. No rent was paid, no shelter being necessary. There was no bar, and yet plenty of bottles. The proprietors of these gin mills carried their saloons about with them. Their coats were provided with multiple pockets sewn in the lining, each pocket containing a flask. If the Tipton Villian happened to, happened to be dry, it was only necessary for him to walk along until he met the most corpulent-appearing man he had ever seen, wink his left eye twice, and walk behind the nearest house. In a twinkling, a flask and a tin cup would be produced, two or three fingers swallowed, a dime handed over, and the saloon moved on in search of another dry men. When the officers made their drive, they had to be in a hurry about it, and even then one of the saloons escaped by jumping into a lake. Five others were captured. Their names are John Campbell, Nick Brady, S. Lloyd, Andy Mooring, and John Bell. They are charged with violating the internal revenue law. Horrible Double Murder Richmond, Virginia, March 19th. A special from Salem, Roanoke County, Virginia, says a horrible double murder was committed on Back Creek, this county, Wednesday night. A man named Griffey, who was a who has a wife living in Back Creek, has just returned from Texas, where it is alleged he served a time in the penitentiary. His wife refused to recognize him, and learning that John and Pickett May's son, uh, Mr. William Metz, had been visiting his wife in his absence, Griffey went to their home, called one of the young men out, and shot him through the heart. He then entered the house and shot the other young man through the right breast. The murdered young men were, are aged respectively 17 and 18 years. Griffey is still at large. Regular listeners will remember this story about the Rock Island Express robbery.
the Rock Island Express robbery, Chicago, Illinois, March 19th. Six days since a horrible murder and robbery was committed on the Rock Island Railway, and yet apparently not even a clue to the perpetrators the crime has been found. The endeavors of the detectives seem to be centered in the capture of Mike Humphreys and a man known as Texas. Last night, it was found that Humphreys had been working in the Grape Creek Miles for five weeks steadily, and there was the night of the robbery. Texas, for whom the detectives were reported to be scouring the country, turned up at the Daily News office this morning. He denied having anything to do with the Rock Island robbery. The night of the robbery, he said he was visiting friends on 22nd Street until 10 o'clock. After that, he went to his home on 19th Street and remained there until Monday. And here's another follow-up. Shot through the heart, horrible double murder in Roanoke County, Virginia. The Rock Island Express robbery, testimony in the Graham murder case. Special to the appeal, Springfield, Missouri, March the 19th. The Malloy Lee case continues to draw crowded houses. Comparatively little was done today except the reading of Charlie Graham's testimony, 83 pages of legal cap, which required four hours. John Brumley, who worked at the Malloy farm, tested that, testified that Cora gave neighbor Evans' family women's clothing along with bacon and salt. He had made a contract with Graham to make a crop. Graham claimed that one half of the farm belonged to him, and he forged Mrs. Malloy's name to the agreement. She seemed to know the contract and kicked because Brumley would not get firewood. He heard Cora say something about being afraid that Brees would take the children away. Mrs. Buffet testified as to the children being left at her house overnight. On his return, Charlie said his mother came also. Graham said it was the children's aunt. Peter Hawkins testified that Graham came home on the fatal night between morning and daylight. He heard him say, quote, We got off at Nichols, unquote. He heard him repeat the statement the following morning. Fifteen witnesses have been placed on the stand. Twenty-five remain to be examined. The state expects to prove that Cora Lee fired the shot in Mrs. Graham's breast. Sensational developments are expected tomorrow. This next section is titled City News. Emma Norman for killing Arnold and Dan O'Donnell for killing Manasco were indicted for murder by the grand jury yesterday. As both were already out on bond, no wits of arrest were ordered. A number of arrests for violating health ordinances were made yesterday. Officer Malinois arrested Matt Craig yesterday for carrying concealed weapons. M. McMahon was indicted by the grand jury yesterday for carrying concealed weapons. Five men are now doing sanitary work. Daly, McPartland, and Barron's, the regular officers, have been reinforced by Horan and Armstrong. A thorough inspection of premises all over the city is being made, and a good many arrests are likely to be made this month. That's the crime news for the 20th of March, 1886. Please join me again for our next episode of A Year of Crime, as reported in the newspapers of West Tennessee. 